Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. Probably the easiest thing I've ever done. The medication comes in the mail and it's very easy to use. I've been able to live my normal lifestyle and I've lost 20 pounds already and I've never felt better. It changed my life. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Turd Tell. Ah, Turd Tell Show, the second day of February in the year of our Lord 2022. So glad you're with us. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you for spending some time with us today. Most precious thing you have, and you're giving us about an hour of it every day. We sure appreciate it wherever you are across the street or around the world. A lot to cover today. Uh, great guest on the program, Eric Cunningham from elections-daily.com. Going to talk about the metaverse. That's that thing Google's spending a ton of money on. They want us to all become part of a massive online role-playing game, but doing real-life stuff in it. I got my doubts. So does Eric. He's written a piece in ordinary-times.com. And we're going to talk about also going to update a couple of stories we've been covering. Uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about Afghanistan. One of the big stories that came out of the disaster piece that was the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Going to turn down the noise on because sometimes the noise is stuff that people really like, but it's still noise and it was wrong. And we're going to talk about that. We also remember about a week ago, we talked about a study about natural gas versus electric stoves in kitchens. We're going to update that in an interesting way because we're going to go to the other side of the planet. We're going to go over to Europe where it is the reverse of the situation here, where gas is a little bit less expensive than electric over there. Gas is more expensive than electric. And we're going to add a wider perspective to that issue. Also, a great story about a young man who wrote his own book and then put it in the library, and the librarians put a barcode on it, loaned it out, and now you got to get on a wait list to look at it. Really cool little story to end the day, but let's start with some politics right here in the U.S. of A. Folks, one of our uh, things that we always talk about in turning down the noise is when you heard tell about something going on in the White House, inter-White House machinations, inter-political machinations, you always have to have a couple uh, overriding rules to make sure you're not getting took for a ride. And one of those rules that we have that's very important is there's no such thing as a leak. Nothing gets out that folks don't want to get out. In other words, if you're reading something from an anonymous source, they didn't fall off somewhere and hit a reporter on the head. They sought them out or the reporter sought them out and nobody talks unless they want to. One thing that is being noticed by our friends at Punchbowl News, and I highly recommend you subscribe to their newsletter. Uh, they do excellent work, especially covering Congress and the machinations inside of Washington, D.C. They have noticed that there has been a rash of stories 
shifting blame. Now, this is not unusual. All White Houses have these problems, and they lead off talking about the absolute cluster that the Trump White House was with leaks and backstabbing and blame. That's because the president and his staff live in a different world, and that staff likes to backbite. There's a lot of power struggles involved in those staffs. Whoever the chief of staff is always has a target on his back by everybody because everybody's got to go through him to get to the president. Things like this. So reading from Punchbowl News, um, nothing will ever compare to the internal firing squad that was Donald Trump's White House. But as President Joe Biden's poll numbers and national standing have swooned, top administration officials from Vice President Harris on down have all had their turn being made the scapegoat for Biden's political problems. Remember that terminology, scapegoating. Today is a repeat customer, uh, HHS Secretary Javier Bricera. The Washington Post has a story on its front page saying the White House is frustrated with him and senior aides have openly, this is a quote, openly mused about who might do the job better. See, let's stop right here for a second. Uh, unnamed sources. There's no such thing as a leak. They're saying this on purpose. Somebody that has it out for them or somebody on Biden's team who wants to shift blame is throwing this name out there. So they talk about the HHS secretary. Scroll down a little bit. Oh, NBC News. Over the weekend, DNC chair Jamie Harrison was considering leaving his post because of tensions with the White House. And Harrison hit back in the media. Now, at least Harrison put his name on it. But again, anonymous sourcing. People are talking. The people not putting their names on it. Backbiting. Machinations. Politics. There is no such thing as a leak. Somebody wants it out there that it's Jamie Harrison's fault, not the Biden team's fault. Looky here. Here's another one. White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain had his turn over the barrel last week with stories in WAPO and Politico. Politico's headline was, quote, it's Ron Klain's turn in the barrel. Now, Ron Klain isn't leaking stories about what a bad chief of staff he is. Who's leaking that? No such thing as a leak. Somebody wants Ron Klain to get the blame. Somebody wants him to be the focus of attention. Somebody wants him out of their way so that they can get that job perhaps down the line. See how these things start lining up? CDC Director Rochelle Walensky has been bashed as well. More anonymous sources on her. Vice President Harris, we've already covered on this program a couple of times. She's had to do a staff shakeup. She's had all kinds of rumors about her staff and the way she conducts her business. You can say that that's being unfair or whatever, but she had the same exact stories and the same kind of rumors out of her presidential campaign as well, having issues getting the staff in line. Hmm. But now that she's vice president, if she's getting the blame for something and vice presidents don't have a lot to do with how the White House and the administration is actually going, that's not accidental. There's no such thing as a leak. What's the theme here? The theme is things are not going well. The president's approval rating is low, his agenda is stalled, and it's an election year, and the base is not happy, the donors are not happy, and the people that are the power that keep made Joe Biden president and want to keep him president are not happy. But it can't be Joe Biden's fault. It can't be Joe Biden's team's fault. It can't be the powers that are behind Joe Biden's fault. So here comes the scapegoats. That means anybody not named Joe Biden because we may need him on the ticket in 2024, the theory goes, has to take some blame. So you blame Vice President Harris anonymously, so it can't be tracked back, of course. You blame congressional leaders. You blame cabinet appointees that are out of favor. Blame anybody you need to blame.
to make sure that it doesn't go where it actually lies. The guy that has the title, the chair, and all the perks, but doesn't want the blame to go with it. Now, this is just politics. Every president has done this. This is not unique to Joe Biden. But always keep in mind, especially in election year where this stuff's going to get real loud, there's no such thing as a leak. People don't accidentally talk to reporters. And if they didn't want something getting out, it wouldn't get out. So if it got out to the point where folks like you and me can read it, it's out for a reason. They want you to know that. They want you to think that. Always start with the basic question, why and who does it benefit before we take these sorts of news stories at face value? If it's blame shifting away from President Biden and onto other people, and President Biden is the president and the man in the chair, chances are that's where the blame shift's coming from. More Heard Tell right after this. Uh, welcome back to Heard Tell. This is one of those stories when we talk about turning down the noise uh, sometimes turning down the noise means turning down popular noise. It's not always just bad noise or misinformation noise. It's noise that people want to hear. That's why it gets loud, because the media, the news media especially, they react to us. And when a story starts going viral, they'll cover it more and more. That's just the nature of the business. You remember back during Afghanistan and the disastrous pullout and the complete omni shambles, to borrow a term from our British friends, since this is going to be a British centric story uh, of us pulling out of Afghanistan, there was the story of this feller who was trying to get this plane load of animals and pets and dogs out of Afghanistan. Uh, reading from The Nation here, uh, this was written uh, by Ali Latifi. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Five months after Western forces fled Afghanistan, the images of their chaotic departure are still with us. Families have huddled outside Hamid Karzai International Airport. Civilians shuddering past Taliban checkpoint, men and women chasing departing U.S. planes, all in a last-ditch bid to flee the Taliban's Islamic Emirate. Now leaked emails suggest that while hundreds of desperate Afghan men, women, and children lined up outside the British Embassy, the U.K.'s Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, authorized the evacuation of at least 150 animals out of Afghanistan. The humans in danger would have to wait. The email sent between officials of the Foreign Office read charity Nauzad, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, run by an ex-Royal Marine, had received a lot of publicity, and the, G the PM has authorized their staff and animals to be rescued. When the charter plane took off on August 28th, the only ones on board were Paul Penn Farthing, a former Royal Marine, and more than 100 dogs and cats. Not a single Afghan was on the plane, one of the last to leave before the Western occupation came to an official end on August 31st. Farthing later claimed that the workers were turned away at the gates of the airport, because they did not possess foreign passports in line with a com condition set by U.S. officials in the final days of the evacuation. Eventually, in mid-September, the Afghan staffers were sent to safety in Pakistan, but the entire fiasco, including the rhetoric spouted by the Nauzad shelter named for a district in the southern province of Helmand, speaks volumes about the occupation and how the forces and governments behind it viewed the people of Afghanistan. For years, the shelter was funded by animal lovers around the world and billed itself as being committed to winning the war for animals. It was a ridiculous notion, no matter what you think about animal rights. Um, the Taliban is horrible. They would have probably got around the animal charities. Let's clear that up right now. They like to kill, maim, and destroy anything that is not their prior thing that they love, which is usually just chaos and a draconian view of the world. So 
I love animals. We have four dogs in my household. We also have a cat that's on top of the children. Um, I love animals. There was not one single animal that was worth one single life getting out of Afghanistan. Now, when this story broke, I got it pushed back on social media because I found it rather disgusting. No, we should not be rescuing animals out of Afghanistan when you had people dying at the gates of the airport trying to get out. We also had U.S. service members killed trying to get those folks out. The British carried a heavy burden, not only manning the gates with their brave troops who have been our allies for years and did amazing work in the chaos of those days, but their foreign office folks, their diplomats, the people that were actually processing, the Brits did a lot of those for the prime minister or any other government official and public pressure to be applied for these animals to get out ahead of any one single person was just wrong. It was disgusting. And it shows you everything wrong with the noise and the social media and news media environment we live in. The politicians and people who had the ability to get more people out felt public pressure and public pressure over animals because they're cute and they're cuddly and we all love animals. I got four of them. I often do this show with one of them in my lap because she just wants to cuddle so bad. I love animals. They're not people. People were dying during this time. There was people falling off airplanes, clinging to them, trying to get out of that country. They were so desperate to get away from the evil, wicked Taliban. For this individual to put people's lives at risk, for these animals, for his own glorification, and I don't care how well-meaning it was, it was for his own glorification, and for politicians to acquiesce to it because they wanted the public sentiment is all kinds of wrong. I don't care if you get mad because of the animals. That's the fact of it. Human life always comes before animals. And the idea that we did this amongst the chaos of the pullout of Afghanistan is just one more log on the fire of how completely inept the leadership of the world, the leadership of the countries involved, the governments involved, had no accountability, had no regard for the lives of the Afghanistan people themselves, and we should just damn the whole enterprise. Dogs over people, shame on us. More heard tell after this. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. Uh, we haven't had him on this itineration of the program, but he's been a friend of ours for a long time. Uh, he is the mastermind and major domo of elections-daily.com. We'll get into that story with him a little later. You've heard us talking about him. You've seen his cohorts on the program. We get the man himself, Eric Cunningham. How are you, sir? Uh, doing good. Happy to be here. How about you? Been a minute since we chatted, my friend, and there's been some big doings with Elections Daily, and we'll talk about that in a little later. But you don't do just election data and crunching and election nerd stuff. You also are quite the good writer. We're happy to have you contributing at Ordinary-Times.com. And you took up uh, the metaverse. So let's just get the nomenclature before we dive into it. What the heck's a metaverse? So it kind of varies depending on who you ask. Uh, the concept came from a couple of, of, of novels, and mainly Snow Crash is probably the, the one that people think of. But the idea is, generally speaking, like a next evolution of the internet. So you have, instead of um, multiple different things you could do, websites, games, all sorts, that everything goes through one platform and it's in virtual reality. That's the general idea, um, which has a lot of problems. 
There's also the broader concept, which is just seems to be incorporating VR into everything, which seems to be the more Walmart sort of idea where you have like a, a Walmart virtual shopping or you have virtual shopping in Target or something. And then obviously you have Facebook now Meta who uh, who are really, really invested in the stuff they own Oculus. Um, they've made this a huge chunk of their R&D budget. They're literally pumping ungodly amounts of money into virtual reality. And all of them are trying to build towards this concept, which is, as we'll talk about in a bit, is not really new. And it's also not really that great. It's got a lot of issues, basically. Yeah, let's start with uh, Facebook, because that's the big ticket item everybody knows about. Um, uh, Zuckerberg came out. He, I guess, modeled it. I don't know how you even explain what that was exactly, but he did a kind of a demo of it. Uh, I found it to be cringy. I found it to be... um, kind of disturbing frankly uh let's let's back up a bit though because they do own oculus you mentioned oculus i think that's a step before we get here that is instructive to what's going on here because mm-hmm. oculus was pitched one way and then once they got it in front of the public it went a very different way didn't it um well i'm not i'm not a huge expert on oculus in particular but they have certainly shifted their direction since being acquired it's uh, it's gotten certainly more affordable under Facebook. They've reduced the cost of the goggles. The goal is to get as many people to have a virtual reality headset as possible. They pushed more towards gaming, uh, which obviously was always going to be a side of this. But the the long and short of it is to get is rather than being sort of a expensive product for people who are willing to shell out a lot of money for a premium VR experience, they're pushing it into more of a consumer cheaper thing. I think some of their cheaper models are around two hundred or three hundred dollars, which is Cheaper than you could get, you know, a Nintendo Switch for at, at a store. Cheaper than an Xbox Series X or a PlayStation 5. Um, ultimately, long-term, they're probably going to want to subsidize this even further, maybe even make them free at some point if they can stomach that cost to make it back in ad revenue and in um, data collection. But yeah, they, they since Facebook has acquired Oculus, they have taken it a very, very specific direction it's what they clearly see the future of Facebook as being rather than just the singular original idea for Oculus. So this seems like a couple of crossing streams as far as the concept goes, because like you said, this kind of started in the gaming environment. Uh, VR is nothing mm-hmm. new. I'm old enough to remember the first uh, quote unquote VR Nintendo. It was red and black and it was a little mm-hmm. tripod thing way back in the nineties. Um, so it's not a new concept. Uh, but they kind of want to meld what we call um, massive multiplayer online games, which are very, very popular. But they want that to kind of be those kind of communities and that sort of thing to mold outside of the gaming world into things like business and into things like social media. You're a gamer. Uh, you're a, you're a tech savvy guy. So I'll just ask you, those are also very, very specific communities, even though they're growing and they're on the forefront of a lot of things right now. I don't know that those absolutely translate to things like business and social media, though. You're, you're right. They don't. And that's sort of the problem with, with this new concept is that so previously, the internet, as it has worked almost forever at this point, is if you want to experience a community, you go to a website and you experience that community. There are different games and all of them are kind of closed off within themselves, right? So if I go, I play Final Fantasy 14. So if I go play Final Fantasy 14, all my stuff is limited to that. I can't put it into a different game. I can't move it over into something. I can't bring something else into it. It's kind of locked behind that. And that's generally seen as normal, right? If you watch a movie, um, you can't just all of a sudden get something from something else and add it into the movie. Uh, 
the metaverse idea is that you would transfer everything over. So anything you you purchase in one thing would be possibly in another. That's where they try to tie the NFTs into it, even though you actually don't need NFTs for that. Online stores have existed to let you resell things for quite a while. Um, so like that's the base level of what they're, they're seeing is you're taking these individual communities similar to an MMO, which has been around for a very, very long time. It's almost antiquated concept at this point and trying to meld it into more of a, something that could be worked for businesses or for just casual people chatting. And that's not a horrible idea, but it also already exists. It's called Second Life. It's been out since I think 2003. Uh, it was kind of a fad. If, if you were cognizant in the mid to late 2000s, you're probably familiar with Second Life to some degree. You probably didn't play it, but you at least saw media coverage of it, right? There are businesses that tried to invest into it that to make it into a sort of a, a business thing. Uh, it was very much the first sort of idea of a metaverse. And while it was popular for a little bit, it's ultimately faded into mostly obscurity. It doesn't have anywhere near the player base of even a moderately popular MMO. So my biggest problem with this with this whole concept is that we've already tried the sort of metaverse idea. It already exists. It still exists. You can still experience that. And it didn't seem to go very far. So how does VR really change anything? That seems to be the, the big technology here that they're trying to add on. Uh, talking to Eric Cunningham, elections.com about meta and the metaverse. Here, here's where I'm at. And I'll, I'll admit I'm one of the uncool guys. Like I, I, I learned technology because I have to, not because I really like it. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not a huge gamer. I do play some online games. Uh, but the thing about social media was Facebook and Twitter uh, let's and Instagram, those are kind of the big three right now. Those were platforms that made connecting with people easier. You could do it just from mm -hmm. your phone. You could do things, you know, Instagram was the whole thing. You can do pictures instantly all the time. Uh, Twitter, you can instantly react to things. Facebook, you can keep up with people in a timeline fashion. One of my criticisms of the metaverse is this isn't easier. You're adding layers to get into something to start with. It's almost the opposite of what made social media and the new technologies popular in the first place. Am I off base there? No, you're not. And I think the fact that it's not really an improvement in terms of anything is a significant problem. The smartphone, when it came out, objectively made connecting to the internet, connecting to people easier. Email, when it came out, made connecting people much easier compared to, for example, what the old Usenet thing was. Um, or compared to faxing, which is still a thing for some reason. Uh, like basically when we invent new technology, um, it improves things. The metaverse is simply taking concepts that already exist and making them worse, which is, I guess it's a good way to get people to invest in your, in your business if you can convince them this is the future. But in terms of creating a compelling product, it's harder to see how this metaverse concept will appeal to anyone. If you're someone who wants to just play a, a game with friends Look at every single MMO out there. Look at the top 20 MMOs. What they all have in common is they're either high fantasy. Um, so you got, you know, your World of Warcraft, World of Warcraft, your Final Fantasies, your Elder Scrolls, all of that, which some of those are already existing franchises, by the way. And then you have your existing franchise. You have your Star Wars, the Elder Publics, right? Those are those are the two major ones. There is nothing in there that's just normal life, real world sort of scenarios. They're all based on fantastical adventures, um, doing something you cannot do in real life. Nothing the metaverse lets you do is something you can't already do right now and do easier and more conveniently. And it, it, 
especially with Facebook leading the way, you know they have their own ideas of, of data collection, data monitoring. I can say when I play a video game, I'm generally not bombarded with advertisements. Uh, my data is generally not being collected to be sold to someone else. If I'm playing Final Fantasy 14, or if you're playing WoW, or if you're playing any of these, they're even, even some, something more predatory. They're not generally doing that. That's Facebook's long-term goal. If you have the eye tracking in the VR, you could track to see whether you see an advertisement or not. If you have advanced enough artificial intelligence, maybe you could see, you know, track the movement, not just the movement of the eye, but the intensity of the eye, whether you're really interested in what you're looking at, or it's just a passing glance or a disgust. Like these are all things that you can theoretically do. And it's certainly how Facebook plans to monetize this because they're certainly not going to get a subscription model working with this metaverse concept. This is not something people would pay to participate in. No, and they're pumping a ton of money in it, which means they're going to be looking to get money recouped somewhere in here. We're talking to Eric Cunningham. Uh, he's the head honcho over at elections-daily.com, but we're talking a little metaverse. Uh, when we come back on Hertel, we are going to get into what Elections Daily is because we're always talking about it on this program. We're big fans of it. We're going to talk a little bit more about this metaverse, including that virtual reality, just using that as a barrier in and of itself. Lots more with Eric Cunningham right after this. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. Continuing with Eric Cunningham, our good friend. Uh, he's the editor-in-chief over at Elections Daily. Okay, here's the thing about virtual reality and people that back it don't want to talk about it, but every time it gets popular, and this even went with 3D movies when that was a big fad with Avatar and stuff, mm-hmm. um, this technology has physical limits on it. And I don't mean bit limits, and I don't mean bandwidth limits. There's a lot of people who just can't physically do this. It makes them sick. It makes them ill. They don't like how it feels. I'm one of those guys. I have certain issues uh, sensory-wise where like, I don't even like going to a movie because I don't like all the surround sound coming from behind me, that sort of thing. Uh, you have people that, you know, obviously that would be on the spectrum that can't use stuff like this. It might bother them. There's a long list of people that just don't like virtual reality and or physically can't do it. I don't know that they're properly addressing this issue because I remember when Oculus came out and kind of famously the guy put the guy in charge of that was like, oh, nobody's getting sick from this. And everybody's like, have you lost your mind? Mm-hmm. This is a real problem with this technology. Yeah, it's it's not nearly as intuitive and as uh, user friendly and as safe as people would say it is. I'm not going to say it's unsafe. There are plenty of people who can engage in virtual reality and do it. But this goes all the way back to the virtual boy that you're talking about earlier. Uh, some people were able to play it fine. Other people had, you know, physically ill after playing it for a little bit. Um, it's just, it's disorienting for a lot of people. There's also the way you interact with this world. Um, pe- one of the bigger movements in gaming recently, actual physical games is, is accessibility, is making it easier for people who have physical disabilities to play games. Uh, Xbox has their adaptive controller. So if you only have one, one arm or maybe you, you have one hand, but you only have, you know, you lost your your other hand. They have ways that are set up where you could uh, manipulate things. They even have ways you could do it where you could use your face or you can use physical movements like that. The metaverse concept really relies a lot on physical rat, uh, physical like um, controllers, right? So kind of like the Wii remotes. If you look at a VR machine, any like the Facebook Horizon concept, which has been widely ridiculed because the, the ad is just ridiculous. But all of the people there have two controllers and one controller, one hand, one of the other, and the item on their face, uh, the, the head tracker. 
if you don't have all of those, how are you going to have your hands movement? Um, there are specific issues with how you interact with this technology that, that make it a little bit more problematic and, and troublesome. And it even goes beyond just physical limitations. So people just can't learn this stuff. Um, you know, Facebook's broad market at this point is not the young people. It's 30, 40, 50 beyond. Um, it's middle-aged and elderly in a lot of cases. How many of them are going to go out and buy a virtual reality goggle set and learn how to use it so they can do what they're already doing on Facebook in a more inconvenient manner? It, it seems kind of like a flawed concept to me. Yeah. Talking to Eric Cunningham, uh, one more thing to put a bow on this metaverse thing. Uh, you touched on it on the piece. You just mentioned it. Um, if, if nobody's like you and me are sitting here going, this isn't a good idea business-wise or tech-wise, surely the people in Silicon Valley, somebody in the buildings over there has to know that this is a iffy prospect. Is it just because the business model of tech now is get all your money on the front end of investment? And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work, but you got your money on the front end. Is that what we're going to be looking at here? Because as long as you can get the boss to invest in it, you can keep this money train going for quite a while. Mm -hmm. Is, is that, is there an element of that going on here? Because it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I think there is. And I think it's endemic to how tech works. You can go all the way back to the dot-com bubble in the, the late nineties, early two thousands. Any company that had any sort of presence on the internet was either being aggressively supported by venture capital or being acquired by other companies. Yahoo, you had the AOL Time Warner merger, which is one of the most disastrous corporate mergers in history. Um, a genuine disaster of a move that had major financial uh, repercussions. The companies that survived, like Amazon and Google, went on to do really, really well. But for every Amazon and Google, there was a pets.com. Um, there are a lot of those. And so when you're looking at this sort of end of things, you, you can look not only to the flaws in the implementation here, the lack of profitability, you can look to previous tech failures. More recently, you had the Juicero, which is just such an absurd, a patently absurd concept. It was a, a fresh press juicer that did nothing you couldn't already do by hand that cost a boatload of money and that cost you, I think, around $10 to $12 per cup of juice um, that you're getting. And this got a substantial amount of investment from Silicon Valley. You could even more look to Theranos, which was promising the moon and the sun and the stars and everything within them. And that promise was enough to acquire billions and billions and billions of dollars. And ultimately, it was for a product that not only didn't work, could not have possibly worked. Um, this is very similar. I, I don't think there's no market for something like this. There's clearly a market for some virtual communities for interconnectedness, for VR, for business implementation. Second Life still exists. It would not exist if it was not profitable to some degree or if it was not being backed by people who think it could be profitable someday. But if, if, if the best you can do, if the absolute best you can do is go on to things that are, is, is grab off of other trends that are already popular, drag, drag off of MMOs, grab off of Roblox, being able to create games in that and just say, well, you can do this here. You got to have a better pitch than that. You got to actually present something new and interesting. And I just don't think it's there yet. I'm not sure it can be, at least not in the broad reaching concept that people are really looking for this interconnected, massive web where everything is connected and it's all a single experience that everyone shares. Yeah. Talking to Eric Cunningham, 
um, about the metaverse. Okay, uh, put your other hat on, your elections hat. Uh, we have been using your folks on the show. You've been on the show with me before. Uh, Joe Zemanski's been on the show. Sarah Stook's been on the show. I'm sure we'll have some of the other folks on since it's an election year. But you just talked about it. Uh, ease of information, having a better idea. You did that with election coverage. You just kind of rolled out of bed one morning and go, I don't like how they're doing election coverage. I think I can do that better. You actually went out and did it, my friend. So give a little bit of the background <laughs> of elections-daily.com. I'm always hyping it. I use it a lot. Let people know what it is and a little bit of the story of how that came about, because I think it's a great story on how we really can kind of take control of our own media a little bit. Mm -hmm. So I founded Elections Daily. I think it was either two to three years ago at this one. We did it at the head of the 20, it was 2019, I think. So that'd be three years. Kind of crazy to think that it's going to be coming up this year. Um, the, you know, the media environment for politics is very, very tenuous and very, very partisan in nature. Um, it's hard to find specific election news coverage and coverage about election law, about politics, about redistricting without a partisan lens. When we're you know exactly what the outlet is promoting and that's what they're going to be promoting. Not that there's not room for that. Um, Daily Cost has some good election coverage. RRH, uh, we're friends with people over there. They have good election coverage from a Republican perspective, but it's still a Republican perspective. Uh, we, When I created Elections Daily and people you know, started joining and contributing and writing about it and we expanded our staff, the idea uh, was to present election coverage that is nonpartisan, not that you're not going to have contributors who are Republicans or Democrats or independents, that they're not going to have their own perspectives, but that our coverage isn't going to be, uh, isn't going to be tempered by that partisan expectation and by that partisan nature. Um, and I think that's really been helpful for us. And I'm, I'm hoping that there'll be more outlets that, that tend to follow and, and go into this perspective because election law is a generally underreported and underfocused on area. Uh, you know, mapping and politics. This is a pretty niche community that, that we're working with here, but it's also one that's growing and it's exciting to see. Yeah. And I, I affectionately call you the election nerds because this traditionally <laughs> it is data heavy. Uh, it is analytically heavy. Um, it's a lot of big words. It's a lot of math. It's a, there's a lot of gatekeeping traditionally when it comes to election coverage. And the thing I really appreciate the way you guys have gone about it, you and your contributors is, this is this is still the hardcore raw information, but it's very, very accessible. Anybody can read it. Uh, you even cover uh, overseas politics. You cover UK. You cover you've covered some of the EU stuff. Um, you get a vast amount of knowledge, but you still keep it on a level where it doesn't have to be somebody that really follows this stuff or understands all the terminology. They can still get into it and understand it pretty easily. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we try to do that with our coverage and we try to do that with our tools as well. Uh, we have several tools on our website that allow people to um, adjust, for example, election results. If you wanted to see how Georgia would look if Trump had won it by a point, we have a tool that lets you do that. Um, we have, and that's obviously great for people who are really, really interested in politics and really versatile, but it's also something anyone can use. You can go in there and, you know, and, and fiddle around with and then see what things could look like if you shifted the country a couple points to where Trump would win or if Biden by more. Um, or potential redistricting scenarios. We try to make it fairly easy to understand. Um, even if the data is there, we try to at least make it um, readable, which is kind of a problem for a lot of the election law. We actually put out an article recently on the Voting Rights Act and how it applies to a congressional district in Florida. Um, and it does go into case law and it goes into all that sort of stuff, but it does explain it, you know, piece by piece, what these cases actually mean. We're not just name dropping 
terms and things and expecting you to already know them. So we try to to make it a little bit more accessible than, than some other outlets, I, I would say. And since this is going to be an election year, uh, 2022 is going to be, uh, it, it's going, let's just be honest, it's going to be all kinds of ugly on the political front. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing I like about it, you give the raw data, but if you cover it the way you guys cover it, you can really start seeing the trends and you can turn down the noise on stuff like, you know, most important election ever and this kind of nonsense mm-hmm. um, because you give them that raw data and you give them that coverage and you can start to see, okay, this isn't just how this is happening. Here's why this is happening because a lot of this yep. stuff really is cyclical. It's trends and we may not know the final results right down to the numbers, but a lot of the big ticket stories are pretty predictable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of it is not just looking at the data, but looking at what's underneath it and, and kind of analyzing it in particular data can tell you things, but data can also be a little bit challenging. Like one thing, one concept we focus on is, is trends. So, um, you know, if, if, a, if a district, so, you know, the 2020 presidential election leaned more democratic than 2016, right? Not only did Joe Biden win, he won by a larger margin of the popular vote than Hillary Clinton. He won by about three points more, if I recall right. So if you have a district that was perfectly even to the nation in 2016, and then it kept the exact same partisanship in 2020, it voted the exact same way, that's actually probably a better thing for Republicans than you would think, because it means the seat didn't shift with the national environment. That's something you can kind of look at, and you have to kind of do a little bit of analysis, but there's ways like that you can look at the data and and kind of see it in a different perspective. Um and obviously, you can't just look blindly at the data. There are things that, that change. There are trends that can reverse. Trends aren't permanent, and trends can be undone. Just look at Virginia. Um, we actually predicted the governor race correctly there. We predicted that Republicans would win uh, the governor race in Virginia, and we did so based on our own examination, not only of the data, but of the race, um, how the polling was looking. Uh, it's, it's, it's a multifaceted process, really. Eric Cunningham. Uh, he's writing about the metaverse that we covered in the first segment at ordinary-times.com, where he's a frequent contributor and we love having him. And he's the editor-in-chief over at elections-daily.com, where you can get all that election stuff we just talked about. Tell folks where they can follow you on social media and some of the stuff Elections Daily's got coming up, because you guys are going to have a very busy year over there. And I know I'm going to be leaning on you. So let folks know where they can find you and your stuff and your compatriots over there. Oh yeah, you could. Yeah, we we definitely will for sure. Um, you can find me on Twitter at de Cunningham too. I tweet about politics, of course, but also culture, uh, media, um, technology, all sorts of different things. I'm pretty uh, tech savvy person myself, so there's a lot of that sort of stuff there on occasion when I when I see it. Uh, you can find Elections Daily obviously at elections-daily.com or elections-daily.com, not the at in front of it. You can find us on Twitter at elections underscore daily. You can find us on Facebook and YouTube the same way. We have weekly podcasts coming out. Um, every Thursday, we have a weekly podcast. We have articles coming out weekly. We have tools on the website. And we're hoping to expand some of these uh, offerings in the future thanks to our uh, thanks to our merger with Decision Desk HQ and the new resources and opportunities and, and help they're giving us internally with their data. Uh, specifically in our election coverage, we've seen a massive um, improvement in terms of what we can show you and, and the data we're using. So really, really cool stuff going on. Yeah, I highly recommend them. I've been using them just about from the beginning, I think. We were some of the first to jump on with you guys. Uh, proud of you, buddy. Doing great work. We're going to keep having you and the other contributors election as daily on Hertel because you fit exactly into what we're trying to do. Uh, I appreciate you, my friend. Thanks for the time today. Yep. Thanks. Thank you, Eric. 
Welcome back to Hertel. You know, we like to always touch up on stories we've covered before. Remember last week, we covered a story about a study that was talking about gas versus electric emissions. And the point of that study was to try to convince people to switch over to electric from natural gas. Now, we took the position that in most of America, natural gas is usually cheaper than electricity. Now, one thing about that is that's true. America is very blessed with a lot of natural gas resources. And depending on where you are, usually it is a little bit cheaper. And we talked about the costs involved. But we also want to have wider perspective on such things. Over in Italy, uh, they have the opposite problem. Uh, the glassmakers, the famous glassmakers of Murano, Italy, they make very pretty painted glass, deep, rich colors. They are talking about eight generations of glassmakers. This is a well-known industry. And they're having a lot of problems because they can't afford the gas to run their for furnaces. Not like your furnace at your house. These things are running at like 2,100 degrees. And in the Washington Post, they go through the issues that these glassmakers on this island in the Venetian um, lagoon are having. Reading from the Washington Post, in a typical year, glass factories here power down only once for maintenance in August. But in Europe, in the midst of an energy crisis... Facing a 400% increase in national, natural gas bills, the gas-fueled blazes needed to produce Murano's richly colored, ornate creations have become a luxury the glassmakers can scarcely afford. After two years of scanning COVID charts, we're doing the same with natural gas prices as curves rise. With the life and death of Murano hanging in the balance, said Andre Della Valencia of Segusa Gianni Factory. The gas crisis stems from a combination of factors. Insufficient stockpiles within Europe constrained supply from Russia, and an increased competition for from Asia for access to the liquid natural gas. As with the Kremlin threatening to cut off the flows if it hits with sanctions over Ukraine, or if the war in Ukraine cuts off the pipelines, the crisis could get even worse. European governments have tried to shield households and businesses from price spikes for Murano gas glassmakers, who were already reeling from a pandemic lockdown in 2020 and massive flooding in 2019, Support has come in the form of a regional and national subsidies intended to help get them through winter. But the price, the gas price continues to rise. The subsidies aren't expected to last them beyond next month. Tops. That led companies like Effetree, I hope we're saying that right, to keep their furnaces off. And some are considering closing up shop permanently. Further down in the piece, they touch on what the real problems here is um, for these island glassmakers. Going electric isn't a real option, glassmakers say. Electric furnaces can't provide the kind of heat or artistic control they need. The sector has been looking into hydrogen as an alternate fuel, but that would require a whole new network of pipes designed to withstand corrosion from the hydrogen running through them. Remember, this is on an island. Uh, Gonella says he doubts the viability of hydrogen as an energy source for Venice beyond filling a niche for sudden needs for power all the way down. This is something really shocking for folks. Uh, if shelling out 5,000 euros for an electric bill one month and 15,000 for the next month, I won't be able to raise my prices by 30 or 40%. My goblet would no longer cost 80 euros, but 150 euros, and nobody's going to buy it like that because glass is a beautiful thing, but it is not bread and milk. It is unnecessary, was the quote from one of the glassmakers. Um, you can read the whole piece in the Washington Post. Wanted to give you that perspective that, yes, we were advocating for natural gas here in that specific instance worldwide because of issues with Russia and other places. Uh, there's other issues. So we always want to present a wider perspective on stories that we cover just because it's the way it is in one place doesn't mean it'll be that way somewhere else. More Hurtel right after this.
Ah, welcome back to Her Tell. You know we like to end the show on a good note, a happy note. Um, this is a really cool story, a Washington Post, but it's been all over the place. You can find it elsewhere. Uh, Dylan Helbig, a second grader who lives in Idaho, wrote a Christmas adventure on the pages of a red-covered notebook and illustrated it with colored pencils, like most kids do. When he finished it in mid-December, he decided he wanted to share it with other people so much, in fact, that he hatched a plan and waited for just the right moment to pull it off. Days later, during a visit to the Atta Community Library's Lake Hazel branch in Boise with his grandmother, he held the 81-page book to his chest and passed by the librarians. Then, unbeknownst to his grandmother, Dylan slipped the book onto a children's picture book shelf. Nobody saw him do it. Branch manager Alex Hartman said he was surprised at Dylan's bold move. It was a sneaky act, he laughed. Dylan's book was, quote, far too obviously special an item for us to consider getting rid of it. Hartman and a few co-workers had discovered and read Dylan's book, which describes his adventures putting an exploding star on his Christmas tree after being catapulted back to the first Thanksgiving and the North Pole. They found it entertaining. Hartman read the book to his six-year-old son, Cruzen, who giggled and said it was one of the funniest books he'd ever known. Dylan is a confident guy and a generous guy. He wanted to share the story, Hartman said. I don't think it's a self-promotion thing. He just wanted to share it with other people. So the staff librarians who read Dylan's book agreed that as informal and unconventional as it was, the book met the criteria for the collection that it was a high-quality story and was fun to read. So Hartman asked Helbig for permission to tack a barcode onto the book and formally add it to the library's collection. Dylan's parents enthusiastically said yes, and the book is now part of the graphic novel section for kids, teens, and adult. The library even gave Dylan its first Houdini Award. That's a who with two O's, you know, as in Dr. Seuss's who's. Susan Helbig said she was tickled the librarian's willingness to encourage her son and happy for Dylan that he actually got his book officially into the library for people to read. His imagination is just constantly going and he's a very creative little boy. He comes up with these amazing stories and adventures and we just kind of follow along. Here's the rub. If you would like a copy, that's the problem. Unlike other library books, there's literally only one of these. The Adventures of Dylan Helbig's Christmas has become a book in demand. KTV, KTVB, a news station in Boise, Idaho, reported on Dylan's book caper, and since then, area residents have begun adding themselves to a wait list to check it out. As of Saturday, there was 55 people waiting to read the book. And though it doesn't take long to read the book, library patrons are allowed to hold on to the book for up to four weeks with a wait list that long. The library does not allow renewals. We hope that our borrowers keep in mind people who would like to get their hands on the book and take good care of it. Usually, if a book has a long waiting list, the library will purchase an additional copy, but they can't because it's a one-of-a-kind item. Harmon is talking with Dylan's mom about possibly creating an ebook version that they can share with more folks. With all the attention, a local children's writer, Christiane Lane, has offered to lead a writing workshop with Dylan at the library for other children. We're hoping children find inspiration to write their own stories and share with other people. I think it's just a good demonstration to share with other kids. Dylan's mom says he may grow up to be a writer. I can also think he might want to be a librarian. We're in libraries, love stories, and love to share them. What a cool little story. Uh, Dylan, I hope you keep writing, whether you do it for a full-time career or as a side hustle. It's a great thing to do. I know writing the last few years with some of the things I went through really helped me and it has brought things to my life that I didn't anticipate. I encourage everybody, even if you never publish anything, it's good to write things down, get them out of your head, get them on paper. 
And if it's good, go sneak it in the library. You never know what might happen. Good little story to end the day on because that will do it for this version of Herd Tell. Love to have you. Reach out. Um, make sure you leave a comment and a rating. You can directly contact us. We'd love to hear from you. You got questions, epistles, comments. Love to hear it. Uh, at Herd Tell Show at gmail.com. At Herd Tell on the twitter.com. Me and our guests, most of us have Twitter accounts. We always put those Twitter accounts on the little graphics as we're talking down here. Mine will be on that side. Theirs will be on that side. Reverse camera. It takes me a minute to figure out which way I'm going. Uh, so wherever you and yours are across the street around the world, thank you so much for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time. We appreciate it. We'll never waste it. We're always going to respect it. And we'll do it again tomorrow. Uh, so we hope you and yours are well. We hope you are well fed. Talk to you tomorrow on Herd Tell. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com.